I am a better investor than I am an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a better coach than I'm a player. And uh, figuring that out in the process of uh, working on a company is uh, both humbling, but also enlightening. Being able to be honest with yourself about what you're good at and what you like <laughs> is uh, a gift that too many people get too late in their life. Welcome to Unlimited Partners, a podcast on partnership. I'm your host, Thomas McGannon. I'm an investor on a journey to understand what makes great partnerships. This podcast is my way of recording that process and sharing it. Today's conversation is with Ben Dahl, who's a managing director of a $500 million early stage investment fund called Signal Peak. Ben is also the co-founder of a company called Unspam, which was the predecessor business to my favorite company, Cloudflare. When co-founder and CEO Matthew Prince talks about Cloudflare, he often references his time building Unspam with Ben. As you all know, um, companies are just people. This is something that I think about a lot. So getting an opportunity to hear about the history of Cloudflare through the perspective of, of Ben, his friendship with uh, Matthew and Michelle and Lee, the co-founders of Cloudflare, his, his journey as a board observer for over eight years, and now as a manager of Signal Peak, uh, they're one of the participants in a $1.25 billion fund that Cloudflare just recently launched to support companies who are building on their workers' platform. I've been really looking forward to getting to know Ben better. I really enjoyed this conversation and appreciate him sharing his story. I uh, want to note two things. Uh, first of all, Cloudflare is a publicly traded business. This is not investing uh, advice whatsoever. This is simply a conversation about my fondness uh, for a business that I've watched being built over the last several years. And then the other thing that I'll mention is that we struggled a bit with the audio here. Apologies for that. We're continuing to work on it. Unlimited Partners is brought to you by Tegas. It's fair to say that I built my technology investing career on the Tegas platform. Since joining as a beta customer back in 2017, I've personally conducted hundreds of primary expert interviews. And I've read or listened to more than 10 times that many using their searchable on-demand transcript database. I simply couldn't imagine making an investment or critical business decision without consulting the knowledge that's captured in their platform. So whether you're a professional investor, corporate development executive, or just someone who's looking for expert insights, give Tegas a try by visiting tegas.com. Let's talk about my marketplace builder. It, it really is the future of the world right now. Exactly how Shopify did it with the e-commerce world where people needed to go through and sell their stuff online. We're doing that with the marketplace spots. There's no limits to how you want to grow your marketplace and how do you want to do it or what your marketplace idea is. So the website is mymarketplacebuilder.com. If you have a marketplace idea, then please go check them out. So please enjoy my conversation with Ben Dahl. So Ben Dahl, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I have so been looking forward to uh, to getting to have some some time with you today. Would you mind, before we get, get started, could you tell us, like, who are you today? What are you working on so that people have an understanding of who's speaking today? Yeah, so I am an early stage venture capitalist based in Salt Lake City with a firm called Signal Peak Ventures. And we invest in mostly Series A, but occasionally some, some seed investments uh, in 
relatively underserved geographies around the country. So uh, places with uh, relatively robust uh, seed capital and, uh, you know, good talent and really except exceptional human capital, but whose businesses, when they get to a Series A stage, uh, don't have as many capital options that are local. Um, typically, Series A investment has been a relatively proximate business. And although uh, we saw some uh, waning of that during the course of the pandemic, I think we are increasingly see it retrenched being more of a, of a proximate business. We have taken an opposite view of that, that ultimately we are willing to uh, get on airplanes and get to know entrepreneurs and ecosystems that are relatively underserved around the country. Um, now, on top of that geographic uh, focus, we also have some thematic focuses uh, you know, and themes, but, but, those, but that gives you a flavor as to what we do. We're looking for entrepreneurs in these markets that, uh, you know, a lot of our uh, colleagues in the venture space don't spend a lot of time thinking about or uh, investing in. And we, we have enjoyed uh, partnering with entrepreneurs in those ecosystems. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it's no surprise to anybody that I am definitely a believer in uh, uh, distributed work from anywhere mindsets. It's something I've embraced personally. And I think that what that does is it distributes opportunity. It distributes where companies get built. The future isn't is here. The future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. Like that, that will normalize. You will see wonderful companies built in these secondary, tertiary markets um, because the quality of life that's offered in some of these parts of the world is just too good for there to not be great company building there. So you know, to build on that, I think that the lifestyle arbitrage that you're talking about is something that we saw uh, well before the pandemic. Right. And if you're an entrepreneur and realize that this is going to be a decade long, if not more, uh, kind of journey, if things go well, you want to set up your life so that it's not agony every time you get up in the morning. Right. Uh, and you're not uh, sitting in traffic or uh, worried about you, whether you can send your kids to the right school or afford a home or what have you. And that was true pre-pandemic, and we were investing, you know, in these geographies beforehand. Post-pandemic, you know, uh, the puck has come to us, right? The reallocation of human capital uh, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, I think, is the undersold story and the untold story that we will be feeling the ripples of for generations to come. Um, and that reallocation of capital, human capital around the country is going to mean uh, that you're going to see interesting businesses start up in places that you would not have anticipated at even greater numbers than there were previously. And uh, I mean, just by example, you know, Utah is one of these geographies that has been a real benefit of it. You know, I've had five CEOs uh, move to Utah as a result of the pandemic, either previous CEOs or current CEOs. And those CEOs, uh, only one of them had a connection to Utah before they moved here. And I think that that is happening uh, in many places around the country where people are looking for 
better lifestyles and understand that life is a marathon, not a sprint. I dig it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be real exciting to see what happens when you have a generation of, of entrepreneurs taking that mindset. My, my, my hope is that you have um, better mothers, better fathers, better friends and husbands and wives. And, and because it, the, the, by, by constructing your life in that way, um, you know, you, 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 uh, you, you have a, uh, a, you build like this, this positive flywheel uh, where, you know, putting out better work, being better in your personal life, it, it, it starts to really fold on onto itself. Um, the other thing it offers is perspective, right? I think that, uh, you know, one of the real problems that you have in, in businesses and look, I am not predicting by any means the, the death of, of Silicon Valley or the, uh, or, you know, the lack of uh, some sort of belief that there will be a lack of innovation within the Bay area. It's a place I spent a bunch of my career and I still believe in it. Right. But you are going to see, uh, businesses that have a little more perspective to a broader market than, you know, some businesses that exist purely along the corridor of the one-on-one freeway, right? Like it's just a different, it's a different mentality and a different perspective. I don't know how you feel about the community that you grew up in, but certainly we're talking, you know, 40 years later about some really amazing company building that, that, that occurred out of, out of that kind of, um, you know, low-level primordial ooze of 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 being raised in in Utah at the, the time when when uh, when you and Matthew first met. You know, my family, my parents were both uh, both doctors. Uh, my my mother uh, went to medical school in the fifties, um, and my grandfather, who had been a doctor, told his three. Uh, three kids, including his two daughters, who were all both born, both born in the thirties, that um, they could be anything they wanted as long as they went to medical medical school first. And so, both of my both uh, my mom and my aunt went to medical school uh, back in the day when that was not really a normal thing for them to be doing. Um, so I moved moved out here. Both of my parents were uh, practicing medicine. And uh, look, Salt Lake was an interesting community, right? Um, very much a community that was um, focused on, uh, you know, it, it, it was a community that I, I didn't appreciate at the time in terms of uh, what it had going for it, both in terms of access to uh, recreation and natural beauty, um, but also access to education. You know, I lived 10 minutes away from the University of Utah, which uh, we didn't really understand at the time had been a DARPA net site for uh, essentially visualization. And some really interesting companies came out of that uh, University of Utah environment, right? So uh, there was a professor at the university, David Evans, uh, some of David Evans' most famous students, one of them is Nolan Bushnell, who founded Atari and then Chuck E. Cheese. Um, uh, John Geschke, who, uh, or not, uh, not John Geschke, John Warnock, who along with John Geschke founded uh, Adobe. And so there was a really interesting computer science background here that we didn't really appreciate growing up because we just knew that there was a computer lab that you could go get access to and what have you. Um, but I went to a 
small private school uh, here with a graduating class of 65 people. Um, and I started there in seventh grade and met, I think, a community of some of the most interesting people uh, that I've ever met in my life. And that's uh, even um, that's even beyond uh, Matthew Prince, the CEO of, uh, of Cloudflare. But there was a whole group of really interesting, really dynamic, really intelligent people that uh, also had some uh, grounding in the real world as well. And uh, that school ended up being a really good uh, place to make friendships. And thankfully, I, I keep a lot of those bonds to this, this day. Um, but for this conversation, Thomas, you know, the most important uh, relationship that grew out of that was uh, for at least certainly professionally, but also uh, from a friendship standpoint, was Matthew Prince, the CEO of Cloudflare. And he and I, uh, in seventh grade, had lockers right next to each other and uh, spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, technology. We both debated. Um, we uh, ultimately when we graduated from uh, our high school, we uh, both went away uh, to college and both were a little puzzled by the fact that people lived in, a, in places without access to seven world-class ski resorts. Um, so he and I, uh, and then he and I both ended up uh, going to law school um, after our stint at, uh, uh, in college. And he went to the University of Chicago. I went to Berkeley for law school. And uh, I made the mistake of going off to practice law, whereas he, uh, I think, uh, basically, although he had offers to go practice law, decided very quickly that that wasn't really for him and that entrepreneurship was more for him. Um, but uh, we maintained a really longstanding friendship uh, and then after I practiced law for a couple of years, um, he and I worked together on founding a company um, and founded a, a company together um, called uh, Unspam Technologies. Uh, Matthew, when he talks about the founding of that company, talks about uh, how he made the mistake of having a founder that was too similar to, uh, to him. Um, and I am that founder <laughs> who had too much similarity to him. It's amazing. I mean, as I've, as I've shared with you, as we've gotten to know each other, uh, Cloudflare is my favorite company of all time. And, and, and a moment we can get into why that is, um, uh, just, and it's not about investing. It's not about m money, but it's about what I believe is humanity's greatest invention, the internet and the role that Cloudflare plays in securing the internet and helping the internet become a better version of itself. The way that, that, that I think, and we can get also into how Unspam was the predecessor to all of this, um, it really was founded on a, on a symbiotic notion that harnessed power and uh, value creation in a way that I just, I, I continue to, to be in awe of. A couple things that I would love to loop back to, your mother going to uh, uh, medical school in the 50s, her father having told the kids, do anything you want as long as it starts with med school. 
Can you share a little bit more about that? I mean, what, what it, how did that impact the way that you grew up? How did that impact conversation? And I, I, I was thinking the other day, um, there's nobody in my close family that's practicing medicine. But as I look at our four boys, I would love if there is a, is a, is a doctor or somebody bedside um, in this group, because I think, I think it's a really um, noble profession. Would just love to hear like how that, uh, who your mom is and how that impacted uh, your family growing up. Yeah. So uh, look, the, the impact was significant. I think that both of my parents uh, had a significant impact on uh, me uh, growing up. And partially it's a work ethic, partially it's a, uh, an ability to do hard things. I mean, my my father was uh, grew up on a dairy farm in uh, what is now a suburb of Salt Lake, but at the time was, you know, farm country. And, you know, when we used to try to stay home sick from school, uh, I think I could count on one hand and not using all my fingers the number of times that I stayed home sick from school because he, he used to say 90% of the world's work is done by people who don't feel well. <laughs> and, uh, awesome. the reality of, of that work ethic, uh, you know, obviously that's changed a bit with COVID and concerns about illness and what have you, but the, but that notion that, uh, you know, things aren't going to come to you and you, you know, the cows are not going to milk themselves and you need to get up and, and, uh, get out of bed and work. And I think that that work ethic was extremely helpful. And then on top of that, uh, the focus on education, the notion that no matter what you ultimately end up doing, that education and and, uh, acquisition of knowledge and curiosity is something that you should be spending your time pursuing. Um, and, you know, we were always surrounded by uh, big history books. We used to always joke about the stack of books that my father had on his bedside, which usually numbered about 20. And, uh, you know, when he passed away, it was sort of like giving away one of the, uh, a great historical library because he had just amazing, amazing tastes in books. So ultimately, you know, that curiosity and drive uh, but also a, a notion of, of work ethic and uh, a belief that you needed to uh, get yourself out of bed, even if you didn't feel like it, uh, was something that, you know, was extremely important in my household. Uh, that's great. I mean, I think um, the, 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 the terms evolve, but the notion that, that the, the world's work is done by people that, that don't always have clarity, that don't always feel like, you know, they're, they're, um, in the spot where they, 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 they feel like executing. It's just like you show up, you do it because that's your opportunity and therefore your responsibility. Like I, I really, I dig that a lot. That that's really, that's really cool to think about, um, growing up in in that kind of a household and specifically in the time that you grew up in, in Salt Lake city. I did not realize that, uh, there was a DARPA uh, installation in Salt Lake City. I especially didn't realize that it was in the uh, domain of visualizations, which is fascinating to me because you talked about a couple of companies that were founded by people of that era. Um, what was uh, Atari. Atari, Adobe, Atari, the businesses that I've studied um, it, you know, recently that come out of the region, um, businesses like Qualtrics, businesses like Domo, they are also like very 
uh, visualization layer focus. So this means taking data, assembling it into charts and graphs, and then presenting that to line of business people so that that data can actually flow through to insight and action. Um, I'd love to hear you just jam for a minute on like what kind of a technology community that Salt Lake City was and is. I, I think it's fascinating. I grew up in Kansas City, a, a region that's that's trying really hard, but still struggling, frankly, to establish, you know, itself. You know, answer the "Who am I?" question from from a uh, a digital era perspective. Like, what's what's unique about Salt Lake City? I'd love to hear you just kind of talk about some of the the, the DNA there. Yeah, look, I, the the DNA here is fascinating, right? I mean, not only do you have the the DARPA net site uh, that that um, you know came from uh, came from that distribution of technology around the country, and if you look around the country, you see these ripples, right, that have continued from the investment there. So Carnegie Mellon University is a great example, right, where because it was a DARPA net site, you continue to see. Uh, ripples of innovation coming out of Pittsburgh in a place that that I think, uh, you know, if you were to look externally, you wouldn't sort of expect, right? But but that uh, investment there, I mean, the University of Utah still has a an incredible institute called the Scientific Computing and Imaging Institute. Uh, and it's still, you know, still a center for those kinds of things. Um, but on top of that, what happens with these ecosystems, right? And, and I think Kansas City uh, will ultimately be something along these lines with respect to uh, what breeds success is initial success, right? And so we had, in addition to Evans and Sutherland, which David Evans started and was a publicly traded company in that sort of visualization technology, you also had the founding of WordPerfect and Novell, right? Both of which are companies that we don't really talk about today. Uh, but, you know, in terms of word processing, WordPerfect was, you know, basically the, the predecessor in many respects to Microsoft Word and uh, in some ways was considered to be better. Uh, Novell was really a pioneer as it related to networking technology and in many ways helped found some of the, you know, early concepts as it related to networking and what have you. And what happens is when you create those kinds of successes, what the, the people who are parts of those successes ultimately uh, see where technology is going, are on the cutting edge of where technology has been and, and will go. And then they go out and found more companies, right? And so you look at, say, Omniture uh, here, which will ultimately Adobe purchased, right? And that was on the backs of some of this internet networking visualization kinds of technology. And I think ultimately we see a lot of those uh, innovations that are continuing on that front, right? The Utah ecosystem also has uh, another gigantic benefit in addition to this background of technology, which is there is very much a sales culture here. And as a result of the sales culture, people learn to sell very early, which means uh, frequently sales organizations are built out and are more effective 
uh, early on than in a lot of other ecosystems because it is more sales driven and less product driven in many respects with a lot of these companies. Um, earlier in the podcast, I, I had an interview with a um, venture investor in, in, the, in the region named Kyle Harrison. And in one of our conversations, we were talking about this, this very topic, the sales culture in Salt Lake City. And he's like, look, man, uh, when, you ha- when, you're, when you grow up uh, uh, Latter-day Saints and, and then you go on your mission project and you have to evangelize um, and you're like, that is, that is a sales process. And so as a, as a downstream of that, you become very comfortable uh, in conversations that other people might not feel as at ease. And also you, you become pretty focused on driving towards a conclusion that that sale, um, uh, whether it's uh, from a faith perspective or from an enterprise software perspective, like it's a lot of the same muscles. So it was, it was an interesting reflection on, you know, correlating the, the, the characteristics of a community. Um, there's a lot of conversation about like work-life balance and, and, and how that's evolving into like, no, you, you find these positive flywheels and, and, and manner manners of relating one to another um the visualization and the sales uh led cultures in in salt lake city i just it's fascinating and i'm, I'm like you said you know best perf- the best uh, indicator of, of future performance like it actually is past performance you follow the green lights the things that are working those communities uh uh that that talent vortex that that forms around those successes like it, it if it's not producing like similarly downstream outcomes than like something something got broken in the in the community there exactly i do think that there is a danger with some of the sales success with a bunch of organizations here of losing a little signal um, in that you can see sales success prior to product market fit because the sales cultures here can be so good. And so you really have to spend time when you're investing in businesses. And that goes for here and elsewhere, right? But really making sure that there is product market fit and not just a good sales culture that is causing some blip up in terms of demand and revenue. And this is a fascinating topic. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it multiple times and I, I completely agree with you. And I, I was I, I um, have been doing monthly calls with uh, the new uh, head of demand gen for that company, Tegas, I was talking about. And we were we were chatting about this very topic yesterday, how they need to evolve from like a, a sales organization built on heroics and individual contribution and, and more into an organization that has um like structure and criteria and rigor and like predictable, scalable ways of of receiving that 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 noise, uh, uh, converting it to signal, and then actually making a data driven, uh, uh, like charting that course forward. Because like yeah, you can have a situation where if someone makes a big sale early on, like that can actually be the worst thing that happens to the organization because it it it, it changes the direction that it that it really ought to have gone down. Well, so, so I agree with that. So I think there are two, two challenges, right? There's an investment challenge and then there's an operational challenge, right? The investment challenge is when you see sales, how much is sales the personality of either the seller or the seller selling organization, right? Or the connections of the selling organization calling their friends and saying, hey, I bought your stuff when I was at XYZ company can you help me out? I've just started a new gig. Like, would you please take, 
basically buy my product, right? And so you end up uh, creating false signal, right? As a result of that sales success. But then operationally, the, the other issue you have, particularly in early stage companies and particularly product driven organizations, is that a lot of that selling initially is founder selling. And so the other issue you have is that even if there is good product market fit, and even if the founder is good at selling, you need to operationalize the capability of the organization to sell without the founder being involved in every sale or the founders being involved in every sale. And that is a operational challenge, which is related and they both are important when you're investing and or managing an investment in that, you know, you want to make sure that you're getting signal when you're making an, an initial investment. And then you also want to make sure that operationally you're able to scale the business and getting away from founder selling uh, can create some headwinds for you from a sales traction perspective. But ultimately, you need to be layering in people to help the founder uh, ultimately become obsolete, right? Because if you think about the way good founders uh, are supposed to layer in talent, ultimately you're trying to make yourself the worst at every job. You want to hire better people than you are, right? And the best founders do that. Uh, I think we're going to come back to this when we get a little bit further into Cloudflare, um, because I think there are several examples where really, like as an observer of industry, whether it's operational uh, uh, technology chops, Cloudflare has had uh, and does today some of some of the, the, the best in the world. Uh, and I, I think I think that is uh, at least in part an outgrowth of, of how Matthew sought to run the organization. Ben, I, I think that maybe the, the the what I'd like to do is can, can you can you introduce Cloudflare and, and maybe it actually starts with Unspam uh, the conversations that you and and Matthew were having um, maybe sharing a little bit about what Project Honeypot was um, and 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 the the problem that you saw in the internet as it related to spam how you solved that and then in in kind of like this miraculous jujitsu move by solving for some of the deficiencies in the internet. I think you ended up setting the, planting the seeds for uh, infrastructure that now provides a, a growing list of services. Yeah, so uh, Matthew and I uh, worked on co-founding along with a, uh, a third uh, member of, of our founding team who we also went to high school with. Um, uh, a company called Unspam, and the idea behind Unspam was to allow a uh, government to create a do not email registry very similar to the FTC's do not call registry. Um, and the notion was to create a double blind system so that you could avoid revealing email addresses that were on that block list while at the same time uh, providing data to the uh, companies that were sending um, unsolicited emails to uh, remove those people from their lists. Um, and so in the process of doing that, one of the things that we wanted to create was some anti-abuse mechanisms. And one of the mechanisms we came up with was a mechanism of tracking 
the reputation of internet protocol or IP addresses. And Project Honeypot was the way to do that. And ultimately, what we did was created a distributed system of uh, Honeypot email addresses where we would uh, take the IP address when a crawler would gather that uh, email address and we would associate that uh, IP address uh, with that particular email address. And those email addresses were unique and they were issued to uh, every crawler that would come uh, uniquely. And so we could track the internet protocol address of the gatherer or the scraper of those email addresses. And then we had an MX record which uh, essentially allowed email or unsolicited email um, that was going to those email addresses to be uh, routed to our servers. And therefore we could track the reputation of internet protocol addresses and also could track the distribution of email addresses between the gatherer or the scraper and the ultimate sender of those addresses. And in the process of talking about this anti-abuse mechanism, uh, one of the things that we discussed was creating a, an HTTP blacklist, basically, of if you knew that there were going to be unsolicited emails coming from particular internet protocol addresses, or you knew that there was going to be, uh, you know, not just spam, but also fraud and what have you, you could block or selectively route those internet protocol uh, addresses to different pages or otherwise block them from accessing your server or your website. And uh, when we made that uh, project Honeypot, we did that alongside a, um, a programmer that we met in the process of working on Unspam, Lee Holloway, and Lee became uh, ultimately one of the co-founders of, of Cloudflare. Um, and as we were kicking this around the office, one of the things that we discussed was how you could create this HTTP blacklist and make it its own product. Um, and, you know, in the embryonic way, that was very much the uh, critical insight associated with the founding of Cloudflare, that you could create some collective network intelligence and use that collective network intelligence to make everyone's website uh, more secure. And uh, by basically using this IP reputation system that we had developed. Ultimately, you know, Matthew and Michelle, uh, Matthew's third co-founder, uh, you know, they worked on this in, in business school when Matthew uh, took a, a sabbatical away from Unspam and started business school at Harvard, um, as they were working on this system, one of the things that they came up with was this was a great way to make websites more secure, but how could you make websites more secure while at the same time not slowing them down? And in terms of critical insights, that collective network intelligence was hugely important. But I think the other thing and Matthew and Michelle's critical insight was that ultimately you couldn't have performance suffer as a result of security. And 
the the system that became Cloudflare ultimately was focused on building a system that created not just more security, but also created this uh, performance lift as well. So you got both performance and security. You didn't have to choose one or the other. Could you talk about, and then we'll loop back to some some topics that you've, uh, including including uh, unspam, um, we'll loop back to that, but could you talk about like how Cloudflare, like Matthew, Michelle, Lee, not owning any internet assets could 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 walk into this proverbial room and get bandwidth uh, computing power from incumbents because uh, I think that the way that they identified uh, the need for security and the requirement that performance not suffer, juxtaposed with the the fact that the internet is actually an aggregation of a lot of disparate networks. These are regional networks, uh, maybe nationwide, never global. The way that traffic gets routed from one sub-internet uh, to another, I think it really opened the door for how Cloudflare could bring this solution to the world in a manner that's just been insanely capital efficient. Yeah, so so it's funny, Thomas, when you talk about this, uh, people didn't believe them in the beginning. I mean, the, this was not something where uh, where there was hu- a huge amount of faith externally that they could do this. I mean, ultimately, you know, the, the difference between technology and magic is sort of indistinguishable for a lot of people. Right. So I remember very well, even when they had built the product and even when they had beta customers, uh, them launching at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt, the, the conference out in San Francisco, sponsored by the, the TechCrunch publication. And I remember very well, they came in second uh, that, in that competition. And most of the questions, if you go back and look, described it as being... Uh, almost too magical. Like how can you possibly provide all these security services and not create more latency? And it almost seemed uh, too good to be true. And I remember being with the team after they came in second from TechCrunch Disrupt and how crestfallen they all were, right? And ultimately it turns out coming in second is a great motivator for people. because they ended up uh, ended up becoming and I think an even uh, bigger company as a result of that motivation. But uh, ultimately, you know, it's about building brick by brick. Um, and you know, they started off their beta customers that they got initially were uh, people who had contributed to the project Honeypot uh, project who had uh, signed up for it and wanted to be a part of it and what have you. So you knew these were people who were, you know, willing to tinker and willing to try some new things. And, you know, one of the real magic uh, pieces for Cloudflare, which some of the other gigantic internet organizations didn't have at the time, is that because Cloudflare was seen as being kind of a toy, they were able to uh, launch code that might might break a website here or there, 
right? And so they were able to iterate faster than someone else who, or, or another company that might have launched it under a bigger brand name. And that lack of ability to uh, break things meant that they couldn't learn, learn as fast. And so ultimately that feedback loop and that iteration ended up allowing that, plus this pool of customers that were uh, part of that project honeypot project meant that they were able to find people who were willing to contribute. They were able to build a brand around this innovation. And they were also able under that brand to take some risks in a way that I think other people were not allowed to take risks at the time. It's fascinating. And so maybe just to try and say some of this back. So, so, so with unspam, uh, you all identified that, that, that spamming was a real thorn in the side of the internet and, and a way to identify, um, or rather a way to combat spam would be to, to build a reputational score for every IP address in order to, to understand good actors, bad actors, you have to get lots of volume. You have to get uh, lots of, of activity. Uh, and so you set up these honeypots, these, these websites, which would attract um, uh, 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 activity from, from some of like the worst actors out on the internet. You were able to kind of light up that, that blacklist. Um, and then by having that then asset of, of the blacklist, you were able to attract uh, a very long tail of mostly hobbyist internet users to, to sign up for Cloudflare. And in, and in signing up for Cloudflare, you effectively get behind a, a, a proxy, like a, a network wall. So Cloudflare will um, kind of be a, a layer between you and the open internet. And so as you're getting hit by all of these nefarious actors on the internet, you have almost like this force field around you. And, and, in, and in providing that security service, uh, Cloudflare was able to partner with a lot of asset owners. Uh, these are like internet, internet carriers, like your, your, um, or, 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 um, uh, data center operators. Um, and, and in, and in providing a service to those, those customers, um, the, the, the asset owner would say like, sure, like this is, these are mostly toy customers. You can run some, some security, uh, program on there. And, and, you know, I guess if you're going to be routing traffic and that makes it more efficient, then there's the symbiotic relationship where as the asset owner, like I'm fine to have you deploy some code into, into my environment. But what happened was that all of this long tail of users that really aren't paying much money for the service and Cloudflare doesn't need much money because again, they're getting a lot of this bandwidth and, and storage and compute for, for darn near free. They're also being extremely conscientious and how they build their software so that it runs in a, in a hyper-efficient manner, that, that this long tail of customer base, because of all the data, because of all the activity, it informed the, the engine. It, it, it kind of like created this visibility into the internet that, that no one else really had the ability to, uh, 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 to, com to compete with or to build. Like it just came from such a, a peculiar orthogonal angle. And, and it seems to me like, like, you know, they, 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 they were able to gain some, some, some critical mass and also some, um, uh, uh, like 
performance uh, metrics that that have 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 now put them in a spot where they're they're adding what would be called like up stack services. So they're they're adding um, security uh, functionality. They're they're actually really turning into a, a a cloud vendor of the future like Amazon or Azure or GCP. Would you be able to talk about just some of that like transitional work and 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 you know you you've spent a lot of time around this organization over the last uh 10 12 years would love to hear like some of those key learning uh opportunities and like how how this has 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 actually worked because i i've given you like you know i that's the narrative that like a hedge fund manager would would articulate i'd love to hear some of the guts of of how this has come to bear so you know you, you talk about all of these uh hardware and software and network providers that were willing to partner with them in the beginning you know they uh they were sort of alone right they didn't have a lot of that now they've they become really good at partnering with people who are looking to peer traffic right and and to to reduce traffic costs um, you know, and the, and the way that they ultimately serve their publisher customers is through a reverse proxy, right? Um, and what that allows them to do is keep the code closer to uh, the ultimate website viewer, right? Or web application user. And by keeping code near the edge, you do a bunch of really good things. Right. The first is you improve the experience of the person using that web service because latency is lower, performance is better, what have you. You reduce bandwidth costs from the origin because it turns out it is substantially more expensive to serve a bit from the origin to the edge than it is from the edge to the ultimate user of that product. And so the economics associated with edge edge compute to the ultimate user of that web resource is substantially better than from origin, the, you know, the ultimate origin to that uh, particular, uh, particular user. And, you know, the, the ability to, on top of that, uh, by putting content applications, uh, other resources at the edge, while at the same time, reducing costs and increasing security is the is the magic there right the magic comes from that capability of doing all of those things simultaneously once you're there and once you're at scale what happens is you have a gigantic collective network intelligence about the threats that are going on within the broader internet community. And once you have that scale, you have a proprietary data set as it relates to these threats and issues at the edge, and you're able to use that data to make your system better. And so ultimately, it's a gigantic flywheel from a data perspective and also from a bandwidth perspective. You're able to make your bandwidth cheaper you're able to increase your distribution of edge servers so that the uh, content and services are closer to web, web users. And you're also able to uh, get economies of scale as it relates to bandwidth. And so all of those things are 
together, it's the great thing and the hard thing to explain, explain about Cloudflare is Cloudflare is not just one magical insight. It is many, many very good small decisions. Um, and it's one of the reasons that it is uh, likely going to be long-term harder to compete with is just that it is a collection of relatively small decisions that have been made over time to make the network better and to make websites run more efficiently and faster. How did, so you, you um, kind of corrected or gave some perspective back to me that uh, in the beginning, these asset owners, like they weren't very keen to partner with Cloudflare. Uh, how did, do you remember, like, how did they get that spark? How did they get that initial momentum? Like, what were they doing when no one gave them the time of day? And, and how did, how did they, how did they, how do they operate in that space? And then, and then over time, kind of, what were the key conversion wins? Look, I, I think the, the real key in the beginning was having a pool of users that were willing to try us. And, uh, you know, getting that sort of collective network intelligence flywheel going was uh, extremely important. Um, and then on top of that, I, I think the other thing that is um, really important as it relates to these network businesses is there has to be a certain storytelling narrative and also brand. Uh, you have to pay attention to brand. And I think Matthew and Michelle have been exceptional at both storytelling and brand. They have created a brand that is transparent and that people root for and uh, that uh, ultimately is a, it, I mean, I don't know how much time you've spent looking at their uh, blog, uh, Thomas, but their blog is probably some of the best. It's the most impressive uh like corporate communication asset, uh, like I've ever, I've ever seen, like it's, it's phenomenal. The, the product cadence that they, uh, sustain over a really long time, this being like launching new products that do, you know, storage compute, uh, uh, that solve bandwidth back and forth data movement, um, uh, opportunities they, they, they launch potential billion dollar businesses several times a year. The way that they articulate the uh, insight that went into launching that service, uh, the way that they uh, uh, execute in terms of like bringing that out in a in a manner that's that's really going to inspire like, hey everybody, we built something that we think is cool. We'd love if you would all come and use it. Like and and like really truly having that. Like we talked earlier about a sales driven culture. Like eventually this is sales oriented, but that value creation focus spends you spend so much more time in that layer than the value capture i got sorry sorry to cut you off in a sense but like their blog is amazing yeah look their, their blog is amazing and look when they have issues uh you know which inevitably a an internet business at scale occasionally does like they are extremely transparent about those issues not only do they solve those issues quickly but they're extremely transparent and provide people a perspective as to exactly what happened. There's no question about what happened. And I think that that um, credibility as it relates to the network and the credibility as it relates to their customers is really hard to overstate as an asset. 
Yeah, it, it, um, no, it, the, because because it makes you like anti fragile. Like when something bad happens, uh, if you respond in a really proactive, stand up way, that has a, a a manner of like adding to to the uh, 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 trust that 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 in a bizarre way like wouldn't have even been possible if you hadn't had a mess up in some way. I, I think the other thing that they did, which I think was has been extremely intelligent and has proven to uh, pay dividends really long-term has been their free customer tier. Providing a free customer tier has allowed uh, web developers to play with this in their own, per- with their own personal website and their own, uh, their own infrastructure and their own projects. And so they work on this with their own projects and then they take this to work. And they may need some additional features. They may need additional support. And, but that ability at that free tier to allow people to experiment, I think has been extremely important. On top of that, that free tier provides more collective intelligence as it relates to threats. And that threat intelligence that they have is something that helps the entire ecosystem. And so what's really great, and I think it's a poorly understood, is how much a network affects business this ends up being, right? Because that collective intelligence really builds on itself. A statistic here, just to put this into context, it's like how big their free user base is. Um, I don't know where we are this quarter, but earlier this year, uh, Cloudflare's network accounted for almost 20% of all net internet traffic. What's amazing about that is, so let's start with who they don't have as customers. Like, so they don't have Netflix as customer. They don't have, um, you know, any real like video streaming. There's some TikTok use, but it's, 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 it's relatively small. Uh, there's some Facebook use, but it's relatively small. So once you back out all the, the really massive monolithic customers that frankly you don't actually learn that much from because 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 those are predominantly walled gardens the open internet uh, on a on a market share basis is 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 so, so crazily under cloudflare's um proxy at this point that the the data the insight the action that they can take in terms of building very um, uh, responsive uh, product and services uh, to lots and lots and lots of customers and having automated ways of, of serving them. Um, it, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating. Um, one thing that I, I would, there are really two things uh, uh, about the, the Cloudflare story that I want to loop back on. Um, I'd like to talk more about, about unspam and, and, just kind of how that how that was for you, like what what that time was like, you know, building building uh, Unspam, which was the predecessor to, you know, just one of one of the the great internet companies. Uh, and then I'd also uh, I'd like to talk about Lee Holloway because uh, I've read a few articles about him. It just he sounds like an absolutely brilliant, beautiful dude um, who who suffered um, uh, some real health issues. And, and it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tragic and, and, and beautiful story. 
um, as, as, as I was, as we were leading into this conversation, I said that a lot of my feeling about, about Cloudflare and the people involved is that it's something of like an internet Avengers story. I mean, everybody here is, is the best in the world at something. And, um, but it, as life has it, my grandmother always says as it, as it, at its best life is difficult. There, there have been some real challenges here. So let's first, let's, let's talk about unspam. Like, um, I, like you'd mentioned earlier, the story of you and Matthew having lockers next to one another, the lesson that he learned about not having a co-founder that was too similar to him. Um, I think that those are great stories to share in hindsight. Um, I also remember whenever I'd hear that, like I've, I've wanted to talk to you about this for a long time because um, I I want to know what that was like. Like I imagine that like kind of sucked at parts. And, 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 and I, I think what I admire about you as, as we're getting to know each other is, is your ability to, um, continue, uh, uh, having like a productive, uh, uh, engaged relationship. You were a board observer of Cloudflare for the first eight years of its existence, which, which really is where it, it became who, who it is. And, and now we're executing on that. Um, and you've got a venture fund that's now partnering with, with Cloudflare to, to, to back some of the companies that are, are real rising stars in this ecosystem. And so I just, I think you probably had a point back Back in, in history where you could have said like F off to this, I'm, I'm going in a different direction, but you didn't do that. And so would just love to kind of hear some of the personal story of Unspam, if you don't mind. So look, I, I think that ultimately, you know, we ended up, it, Matthew and I ended up in a, and, and Michelle, uh, you know, all ended up in exactly the kinds of roles that we were best in, right? Matthew was a fabulous CEO. Um, and uh, I am a better investor than I am an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm a better coach than I'm a player. And uh, figuring that out in the process of uh, working on a company is uh, both humbling, but also enlightening, right? Being able to be honest with yourself about what you're good at and what you like <laughs> is uh, a gift that too many people get too late in their life. I think that ultimately, uh, look, I'm very, very lucky to be an investor. Um, you know, being an investor allows me to scratch the itch of my curiosity on a daily basis, right? As opposed to trying to solve uh, one set of one company's problems, you know, ultimately, none of my days are similar, right? And ultimately, I think that for me, I am a better advisor and better investor than I am an entrepreneur. And uh, getting some clarity about what you're good at and what you uh, maybe aren't as good at, it turns out uh, is uh, you're just getting that earlier rather than later is a great blessing. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think, I think so as a result, recognizing that, like putting yourself in situations where you can have like high velocity, lots of reps where you can start to get the data to figure out, am I good at this? Do I like this? Um, and also I think being willing to, 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 to like step out of your comfort zone and to, to take a stance where you feel like I, I'm probably going to get rejected here or like this has a fairly high likelihood or, or it, you know, higher than I would like likelihood of, of being challenging or not working out. Um, but the, the learning opportunity, uh, 
especially when those things do work. Like when you find something that you didn't think would, 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 would float that then does pan out. And, and again, like going back to our conversation about, about Salt Lake city and, and how there have, have been kind of like pillars, industries of like vertical expertise of, of, of focus. Like you got to think about that internally within yourself and, and what are you going to compound on? Look, I think that, I think that's right. I, think that the uh, investment investing in yourself um, and uh, being very clear about uh, what kind of player player you are or what kind of coach you are uh, you know the sooner you figure that out um, the better off you're gonna be right and uh, look I think the other aspect of this journey which has been so important um, have been these friendships Right. I mean, ultimately, you know, one of my least favorite expressions of an activity, right, that people talk about is networking. People talk about, I'm going to go network with, you know, X, Y, and Z. And my view of networking is that networking is a, is a false promise, right? The only networking that really matters is making friends, right? Friendships and relationships are ultimately why deals get done. The notion that you can network in, right, to something while appealing, ultimately what you really should be thinking you're doing is building friendships and building relationships. Because those friendships and relationships are what uh, ultimately provide the, the real benefit to uh, your uh, life. And by extension, uh, you know, end up being the things that 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 ultimately drive financial returns as a as a side benefit, right? But those friendships are what create the richness of the richness of life and create the opportunities. And uh, the notion of referring to that as an, an impersonal networking, I've always kind of found uh, anathema to the way I live my life and and the way. I've tried to develop my business. That is well stated. Awesome. For me, it, it was hearing, there's a Walt Disney quote. Um, we don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies. Um, so finding ways of making your ends, something about a craft, something about a relationship, and then having monetization just be a necessary byproduct to, to further that like ultimate ends. I, I like same freaking page, man. Um, would it, would it be appropriate to, to, to talk about, I mean, in, in the conversation of friendships, I feel like your friendship with, with Lee Holloway and his role at Cloudflare is something just as a, as a person I've, I've thought about a lot, um, wanting to understand, you know, who, who he was, what some of the contributions and and like special characteristics were that that he had and and what that interaction has has taught you about life look i think that um uh i, I am uh, incredibly lucky to have gotten to collaborate with lee um lee uh in his prime was uh an exceptionally brilliant programmer and really understood how to tackle complex problems in uh, elegant ways. And I think, you know, in terms of building on uh, a bunch of small decisions, 
that collaboration between Lee and Michelle and Matthew uh, was very much a, a, you know, give and take and collaboration as it relates to making some of those uh, product decisions early on and uh, creating that collective intelligence and creating the capability to, uh, you know, both provide greater web security and also provide uh, increased performance. Really, you know, we had a ton to do with. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that I got to collaborate with Lee when he was just an employee at Unspam and saw him grow from being a, a student at the University of Santa Cruz to uh, becoming a co founder of Cloudflare. And, uh, you know, Lee was always, uh, you know, a little bit reserved and, uh, you know, he, he had sort of the, the body that a stiff breeze could blow, blow him over. Um, but he also just had a really good sense as to how all of these different pieces of web infrastructure fit together and was incredibly good at, at, at pushing those things. And that I, um, you know, counted myself lucky that even uh, as Cloudflare grew, that I still got to interact and spend time with him because you always got a real perspective on, um, you know, what the creative tension was within the organization and uh, what the new challenges that they were facing looked like. And ultimately, he was always on that edge. And that, that was incredibly compelling. Um, I think that his, uh, unfortunately, you know, and, and this has been well reported, there's a, a great Wired story, which it, it sounds as though, Thomas, you read in advance of this, but the, um, you know, there's a great Wired story about Lee's, I, I, it's great in that uh, it celebrates Lee. It's not a great story in that it, it, it's very tragic, but Lee uh, developed a uh, degenerative, uh, you know, dementia kind of brain brain issue. And uh, he, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, you know, ha has become a shadow of what he once was. And those of us that got to collaborate with him early on, uh, you know, count ourselves lucky for that collaboration. And at the same time, uh, you know, feel a sadness and, uh, you know, sadness and wistfulness at the at at his memory and uh the memory of what he he once was um because he really was a a, a great collaborator a great human being and ultimately you know i think M matthew and michelle in their founder letter in the ipo honored honored lee as well and uh you know it's he's someone i think about on the regular um as being someone who was really instrumental in that success and uh, he, his, uh, his force is missed, that's for sure. Whenever I hear stories about people like Lee, it makes me think a lot about what it means to be present and, and the notion that the time that you have right now is all that you're guaranteed. And so applying yourself uh, in like the best, most positive ways, um, recognizing greatness, greatness when it's there, um, and, and, and using kind of that mindfulness as a way to turn the cards over faster, to have greater liquidity in, in, in your network, to build more true friendships, um, 
uh, I, I think it's always it's always been a uh, it's always it's always been a um, a story a, a group of, of relationships. Just looking at the output, I, I talk a lot about how you focus on the inputs and the outputs take care of themselves. And I've I've a lot of that from a company building mindset is has come from my uh, exposure exposure to Cloudflare. Um, ben, I'd love to to talk about how your time at Cloudflare has informed uh, your career as an investor. Maybe, would you mind sharing with me how you've built your practice alongside this kind of lightning bolt uh, starting line that you, you, you jumped out of? Yeah. So, you know, I've now been venture investing for uh, 15 years. Um, I, I know because I started my career as a venture investor uh, a couple of months before my daughter was born. <laughs> And she's about to turn 15. Um, and uh, the thing that, uh, uh, thankfully, I've had enough success that I get to keep doing this for a living, right? Um, and uh, uh, that is, uh, and I'm sure you get to, Thomas, as a result of your position, get to talk to a lot of venture investors. But I think that um, those of us who are in this business uh, who have any perspective recognize how lucky we are. Uh, we get to think about the world, where the world is heading. We get to ask people really hard questions. We get to collaborate with intelligent people. Um, and those things turn out to be, uh, lead you to an interesting life. Um, so, you know, I uh, spent about a decade with my former firm that invested in, uh, in Cloudflare, uh, that we invested in, in Cloudflare from, from that fund. Um, and I have joined uh, a new firm, SignalPeak, um, which I've been there for four years now. And uh, in many ways, uh, I, we've invested one fund together, me and my, my fellow general partner, uh, Brandon, and it's been a really great collaboration. And I think ultimately what you realize in all of these um, endeavors is the importance of the relationship you have with founders, the importance of the relationship that you have within your organization, and ultimately that uh, what you need to be focused on is uh, what the possibility of returning uh, money to your limited partners with a good rate of return. And uh, that if you focus on those things, your relationships with your founders, your relationships internally, and your relationships with your limited partner partners, you end up in uh, in a good place. Um, ultimately, one of the things that um, you know we have been focused on is, from a thematic standpoint, um, you know one of the things that we're looking at right now is uh, some of this edge computing. Um, uh, edge computing and workers-based. Cloudflare has a an edge computing platform called Workers. Uh, edge computing businesses. Those are things that we uh, continue to look at and are very interested in. Uh, we're interested in uh, the future of the workforce. Uh, we we've invested in a lot of uh, in a lot of things that relate to you know an organization that is uh, pushing towards the future as it relates to how. Uh, their employees interact with with an organization and with each other. 
Um, and so that, that's been a part of it. And then the other thing that we have done a lot of investments in, which is cloud, Cloudflare very much fits into, is uh, businesses that take advantage of so-called data exhaust, right? And, uh, you know, there are a lot of businesses that have been built on big data, right? And the notion of uh, creating the infrastructure to analyze big data. And while uh, there have been some great successes there, you know, I think notably Snowflake and Datadog, those are relatively uh, hard businesses to predict uh, success for. Um, you're much more likely to uh, predictably create good returns with proprietary data sets that build on themselves. And Cloudflare is an example of this, right? Part of the flywheel that we talked about initially was this notion of collective network intelligence. And what that really means, that collective network intelligence, is that capability of leveraging uh, the position that you have within an organization to create a data set which can improve your product and services over time. And you know, we continue to look for opportunities that create these uh, flywheels of data exhaust that provide that uh, capability for the end customers and the end service to leverage that collective intelligence. I would love to so-called double-click into this notion of of, of data exhaust because, um, as you've already kind of identified, like the Cloudflare's ability to do this. Um, really does open the the mind in terms of what's possible. So maybe just to juxtapose what Datadog and Snowflake are um, to the opportunities that you're more interested in, and maybe we can talk about what what some of those industry opportunities might be. Like where what what sorts of products lend themselves. So just like for for listeners that don't know anything about these companies, so Datadog is is what's called an observability um, software business. So they they collect data that's being emitted from your software and and that data will be like run times and outages and things of that nature and so by aggregating that data running a bunch of tests across it you can get this uh, this kind of like pane of glass that, that will tell you the performance of your um, uh, digital estate. Uh, Snowflake is a business that's what's called a cloud data warehouse so you upload a, a lot of data from your business that's kind of the out the exhaust, the output of all of your normal operating activities. What Snowflake will do is they will take that data, ingest it, run it through visualization layer, which again, we've talked about how important that is, and then and then delivering uh, something that takes that business data exhaust and turns it into insights that can inform actions within the organization. I think, Ben, what you're saying is those are hard businesses to, to, to scale because that, that data exhaust um, uh, it, it, it's very close to the, the value creation to the product and the, and the, the nature of, of the buy-in that, that's required uh, for a Datadog or a Snowflake is, is a lot of individual, like we we're talking about sales, it's a lot of individual sales exercises that don't necessarily compound on one another because the data isn't really shared across organizations. It really doesn't inform something about the operation of a broader network. You have a lot of silos of, of information. 
can you maybe if I've gotten some of that wrong, maybe if you could you could correct it. But I think that what 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 you're more interested in is hey, deliver a product or service that um, stands on its own, but but critically where the 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 data that 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 product or service provides as an exhaust can give information and provide network benefits such that as more consumers adopt that product or service their the sharing of their data exhaust action and the, the fact that that is proprietary so maybe it's like point of sale or or something inside of an organization that no one else really has that you can build some really compelling value proposition that that that's um you know orthogonal to that to that principal product or service yeah look i i think you you've hit it hit it spot on ultimately the way i think about this is that those um those services that are more predictable in terms of outcomes are ones where you do have some ability to continue to build the snowball of data, right? Because as you build that snowball, uh, it creates its own momentum, right? And uh, by creating its own momentum going down, going down the hill and building on itself, you provide something that gets bigger and bigger and more ultimately valuable to your end customer. And so when we look at businesses in the data exhaust space, what you're trying to think about is as you add users and as you, uh, you know, continue to operate, can your service or your ability to provide your uh, product get better and better uh, as a result of more people using your product? And uh, I, I think that ultimately that collective intelligence and that data exhaust is something that, uh, you know, when uh, investors talk about big data, I think they spend too much time focused on the AI mechanisms and the uh, machine learning platforms and far less time thinking about what the uh, data advantage that you have initially and how you continue to build that data advantage. Are there any industries or um, use cases uh, that, that you think lend themselves well in the current environment from a technology and market perspective to, to build a really powerful data exhaust business? So we, we have a few right now in our portfolio to just give you a flavor of how diverse this can be, right? We have a company uh, that uh, helps parents um, basically get uh, alerts about uh, what's happening in their children's uh, digital life, right? And uh, I'm a customer because I have a 15-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son, and uh, I want to know if they're running into issues in their digital life that I need to be aware of. Um, and look, the a kid's digital life changes a lot, right? In terms of the applications they're using, in terms of the slang they're using, who they're communicating with, the platforms on which they're communicating. And ultimately, we are able to use, you know, our company there is able to use its collective intelligence to provide parents a continually uh, improving service as it relates to understanding what kids are doing and understanding how to provide insight for the parents. And as a parent, um, you know, every time I get an alert and I tell the uh, the AI to ignore um, that alert or that it's not a big deal, 
it gets smarter about the alerts that it serves everybody else. And so, you know, this, is, this can be as diverse as network of intelligence like Cloudflare, but also, you know, helping parents figure out what's going on in their children's lives, right? So that gives you one example. Another example is a, a, a deal in the procurement software space that we have, which ultimately, uh, you know, provides uh, companies that are using procurement to uh, get smarter and better about uh, providing vendor compliance with their policies. And that is something that is provides collective intelligence. The more people we get on the platform, the more they can share that data among each other and the fewer times people need to enter that data or curate that data. And so that data exhaust over time makes every incremental person or a company that gets on that platform uh, more efficient and better. And so again, it's 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 getting that ball rolling down the hill, but once you get it rolling, it's great. You know, we have another company on the cyber insurance side. Again, you get a sense as to what goes wrong within these organizations, and your underwriting of cyber insurance is going to get better and more accurate. And so ultimately, this notion of data exhaust uh, it has a really broad sweep across many different organizations, but I think it's uh, poorly elucidated and poorly understood by a lot of people uh, in in both the investment community, but also the entrepreneurial community as they talk about big data. Those are some great examples. Uh, as, a, as a dad of four, I will definitely be, be circling back to you when our kids are, are closer to, to starting their digital uh, lives. Um, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping that there can be some more uh, maturity in, in the products and services and the way that, that, that parents think about that relationship that their kids have to the internet and then the relationship that you have with your children. I think our, our thought on the matter has just been to uh, delay that the start of that digital life as long as possible. Uh, we have an eight year old and it's just wild, man. Like we've, he's got friends that have phones and, and eight year olds, you know, can find the same things that adults can find on the phones, uh, on the internet. And that that's terrifying to me, but, um, but it's, it's cool to know that there will be some, some products and also some, some friends like you that I can reach out to, to talk about, about some of those things. Um, one of the, one of the, the other, um, conversations I wanted to have with you briefly is, uh, is relating to this, this fund. It's, uh, I think a $1.25 billion fund that, that Cloudflare announced last month. Um, it's called the Cloudflare, I think, Workers Platform, uh, or Cloudflare Workers Launchpad, perhaps. Um, could you talk to me about, about what that is, maybe share a little bit about what Workers is as a product, um, the role that uh, Signal Peak can play in terms of uh, helping to, to, to really accelerate some of the organizations that are, that are building on that service? Yeah, so look, the, ultimately, this serverless computing or workers platform or edge computing platform that uh, you know, this, this fund is taking advantage of is all about getting web applications and web services uh, and uh, web resources closer to the people that need to use that resource. And uh, by creating uh, this distribution, um, you know, Cloudflare has provided a tool, which I think ultimately will be uh, in many ways a, uh, a, a way to replace a lot of uh, public cloud kinds of needs 
that you know uh, Amazon, Azure, and the like ha- have been providing. And I think the the sign on that you've gotten from us alongside a bunch of big investors here is all about understanding that that lower latency, closer to the user, uh, serverless edge computing platform will be something that will spawn some really interesting businesses. And I've already seen a number of them. uh, And uh, in fact, I I saw one in my office yesterday that uh, is using the, would be using the um, Cloudflare uh, workers platform to provide an additional cybersecurity layer at the application layer. Um, and just to give you an example, and uh, it's not something that Cloudflare had ever thought about using their workers platform for, right? And it's not, it, it, but it's something that uh, ultimately, if you create these storage compute uh, and network uh, resources at the edge, you can deliver uh, far more efficient services than you could before. And I think that one of the things that I think is poorly understood as it relates to uh, the internet and the development of uh, you know, the, the proliferation of data and data nodes that we're gathering, data, that we're gathering um, information from is that uh, it is extremely expensive, like we talked about earlier, to move a bit from the origin to the edge but it's also expensive to move it from the edge back to the origin. And as that volume of data and volume of information increases, uh, being able to keep those resources and keep that analysis uh, at the edge uh, is something that will lead to much more efficiency long-term. And I think some gigantic businesses are gonna be built uh, basically replacing existing types of uh, internet businesses but leveraging a much lower latency, much lower cost, and edge-based solution. And ultimately, we have partnered alongside uh, a number of other funds with Cloudflare, and Cloudflare is going through a process of vetting these opportunities and then sending them, sending them around to these investors as, an, as a way of uh, continuing to make that workers and edge-based ecosystem more robust. It's really exciting. I mean, when you, when you think about, uh, so you've meant you've used this term serverless and we've talked about, uh, the edge, um, thinking about, uh, so serverless means that you can run the same process in, in every one of your locations. It's all kind of homogeneously built and, and why that's special is, is it, is it removes any, uh, choke points in, in, in the internet. It allows you to uh, have everybody, every all of the nodes in your network play a, t- a team role in a way that, as you scale, uh, delivers all sorts of like unanticipated benefits. Being able to co-locate their infrastructure in a lot of their partners' data centers allows Cloudflare to get right to the to the edge, right very close to the environment where consumers are using a product or service on the internet. And then workers is is the um, how would you describe workers? I think Ben, I'll probably ham fist in terms of 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 what it means to 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 execute a, a function on workers. Look, it's really if you think about it, it to your point, it's a way of distributing these processes across 
a really, really broad set of resources and doing it in such a way where you are not uh, setting up what uh, you know, like cloud-based service would, would create, which would be sort of a container, right? Uh, which requires more compute, more dedicated resources, requires some overhead of a hypervisor, all of those sorts of things that uh, you know, traditional virtualization allows. So you think about it, it's a, a way of creating a more virtualized and uh, democratized system of processes that are much closer to the user. That's awesome. It's it's it, it, this when you think about the the net new um, market that's being built in 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 the internet uh, products and services, uh, like this really I think will occupy a disproportionate amount of these these net new use cases. When I think about what it means for software to eat the world from here, uh, it becomes like a very Cloudflare centric conversation. Um, so well, look, I think I think it's poorly understood how. Uh, difficult these data sets are increasingly to move, right? And I think we, the proliferation of edge data is something that, uh, you know, I think we're going to be seeing the impacts of for a long, long time. And I think that, you know, the anticipation that everyone has is the current systems in terms of data and storage and network are going to be able to deal with this proliferation of edge-based data. But ultimately, I think it's going to require a lot more re-engineering than people are anticipating. Yeah. No, I definitely, I definitely agree. The cloud, uh, as it's built today, is just not positioned to serve these use cases. And um, I think it's, 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 it really, in a, in a market sell-off as we've been kind of working through right now, these sorts of conversations are what really like rekindle that that fire, that enthusiasm that I have for for these these types of businesses. Ben, this is awesome, man. I'm 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 so happy we've gotten to do this. So, Ben, my closing question that I've been asking everybody. And this is a little peculiar, but I, it works for us. Uh, tell me about a song. So uh, my dad, when we used to travel in the West, you know, you were talking about fairly long distances. So, you know, uh, it, we would take wrong, long road trips and, you know, without satellite radio or Internet radio or what have you, uh, my dad used to sing in the car and he had a substantially better voice. Uh, and also a better ability to carry a tune than than I would, and so he grew up uh, as we talked about, you know, uh, as a dairy farmer. But in the summers, he would go sheep ranch, and so he would sing cowboy songs. And uh, one of my absolute favorites that he he would sing on almost every road trip was "The Streets of Laredo." And he would, uh, his voice would boom in the car and you just, you'd get a, a, a real flavor of what it was to, what it was like to be, you know, working on the, a dairy farm or working in a sheep ranch uh, growing up. And I think ultimately uh, that uh, perspective and not only that, that the uh, fact that my father was a, would approach his uh, kids with the notion of, you know, entertaining them on a long car ride and uh, connecting us this is something I think about a lot. This is great. I'm about to go on a bit of a car ride with my family. And I just I can't think of a, a better thought, reflection, memory 
to, to send us on our way. So Ben, um, thank you so much for doing this conversation with me. Um, I'm really looking forward to continue to get to know you, to know Signal Peak, to learn more about uh, how to invest the, the, the way that, that, that you guys have. Because um, I, I think it's really good for the world. And um, yeah, just keep kicking ass, man. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. It's really a pleasure. All right. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an Unlimited Partners production. The show is edited and produced by Andrew Thomas, and our music was composed by Nick Samaska. If you'd like to receive more Unlimited Partners content, then please sign up for our private podcast feed. You can do that by visiting our website, up-pod.com.